choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 309 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, The Long Coast. It was a quiet day for the astronauts. They slept most of the day. And even when awake, they're turning out to be the least talkative in the Apollo program. At one point today, Mission Control called up to say, just want to see if you all are still around. Uh, 14, uh, Houston. I just want to see if y'all are still around there. Uh, y'all been looking out the window lately back in this direction? Uh, see anything interesting? No, I've looked out for a while. Got something interesting for us to look at. The astronauts go into orbit around the moon Thursday morning with the moon landing set for 4.17 Eastern Standard Time Friday morning. Monday, February 1st, 1971. 16 hours, 35 minutes, mission elapsed time. In the dark, floating in Kitty Hawk's left-hand seat, a tired Stu Rusa tried to settle in for the night. Like those who had come before him, Rusa found it difficult to adapt to sleeping in zero-G. He wished he could lay his head on a pillow. 45 minutes later, Still awake, Rusa noticed a light coming from underneath the right-hand couch where Ed Mitchell was in his sleeping bag. Rusa assumed Mitchell had turned on his flashlight because he'd gotten tangled in a strap. Rusa could not have guessed the real reason Mitchell was awake, that Mitchell was conducting his own private experiment in extrasensory perception. Unknown to anyone except a handful of people on Earth. As some of his colleagues knew, Mitchell had long been fascinated by the study of psychic phenomena. Edgar became acquainted with a couple of surgeons in Florida who shared his interest. Together, they wondered was it possible to transmit thoughts across a hundred thousand miles of space. In the midst of the all-consuming preparation, Mitchell told them, line up some people and we'll do a little experiment on the flight. And so they did. Each night of the trip to and from the moon, Mitchell planned to perform the experiment, waiting until 45 minutes past the start of the sleep period when he had privacy and quiet. He kept his plan a secret from NASA, knowing that the agency would be completely unreceptive to the idea. He said nothing about it to his crewmates. The test subjects had also agreed to keep quiet, and Mitchell wasn't worried about what would happen if someone found out 
with all the canceled missions, he was already certain that Apollo 14 would be his only space flight. Now floating in his sleeping bag, Mitchell pulled out a small clipboard bearing a table of random numbers. Each number designated one of the standard symbols used in ESP experiments. A circle, a square, a set of wavy lines, a cross, a star. Mitchell chose a number and then, with intense concentration, imagined the corresponding symbol for several seconds. He repeated the process several times, with different numbers, knowing that on Earth, four men were sitting in silence trying to see the pictures in their own minds. After several minutes of this, Mitchell put the paper away and closed his eyes. Had Rusa known of Mitchell's activities, he would not have been too surprised. In Rusa's opinion, Kitty Hawk was carrying three people who, within the narrow military test pilot filter, were as different from one another as it was possible to be. On the circle of astronauts, they spanned a full 360 degrees. Deke Slayton always said he could put the three most divergent personalities in the astronaut office on the same crew, and they would do just fine. As far as Rusa was concerned, the Apollo 14 crew proved him right. Back on the home front, Louise Shepard thought it was a beautiful launch with a 4th of July feel to it. But she wasn't ready to go home yet. At the Cape, Louise somehow felt closer to Alan, even though he was so far away. So Louise stayed an extra night at her Cocoa Beach motel, ate an omelet, watched TV reports on the docking woes, and flipped through a copy of the flight manual Alan gave her, trying to absorb all the details of what he was doing each moment. The next day, she flew home to their 11-room house with the big white pillars in the Houston Enclave that was home to oil men, celebrities, and politicians. Louise's parents and in-laws were already there. Louise's mother, seeing how fragile her daughter seemed, invited her friend Dorel, actually begged her to stay and help around the house. With all the bedrooms filled with family members and the shepherd's daughters, Dorel slept in Alan's spot right beside Louise. The first night, Louise was up most of the night. She finally fell asleep near dawn, but at 6 a.m. there was a loud knock at the front door and then the shrill ringing of the doorbell. Louise sat bolt upright in the bed and gasped. An early morning visitor could only mean bad news. She pictured a dark NASA sedan out front, a chaplain inside carrying a message of sadness and condolences. Dorel told Louise to wait upstairs while she answered the door. It wasn't NASA. It was only the press. They wanted a statement. Dorel was furious and kicked them off the property, scolding them never to touch that doorbell again, especially not at six in the morning. Then she told them Louise would come outside with a statement when she was ready. Later that day, Louise pulled herself together 
fixed her hair, put on a nice outfit, and went out to face the hungry press. She tried to exude confidence and gave a defiantly curt statement, saying, quote, There are lots of other occupations that are demanding of men. I think you have to build a good mental attitude towards your husband's occupation. End quote. Then she turned and went back inside. Meanwhile, back in the command module, Shepard was tense, and everyone on the ground at Mission Control felt it. Two days into the mission, he abruptly canceled a scheduled television broadcast, saying they were too busy and the broadcast was not important. His replies to questions from communicators in Houston were curt, sometimes rude, and the ground crew thought he was being uptight and snappish. Shepard acknowledged later that he found it difficult to relax and was very tired. He tried to eat and drink a lot and do some isometric exercises, but his body felt tense the first two days, especially in his legs, which he kept braced against the wall to keep him from floating around, and he only could sleep a few hours at a time. Maybe it was the weight of taking center stage after a failed mission, or maybe the earlier docking problem had spooked him. Whatever the reason, Shepard spoke very little en route to the moon, reporting back to Houston only what he felt was absolutely necessary. He didn't try to describe the dark vastness of the universe around him, nor the dead moon ahead. He kept his thoughts and his words to himself. Finally, NASA reported, after studying the problem with the docking mechanism, they had decided to allow the lunar landing to proceed as planned. Uh, 14, this is Houston. Go ahead, Houston. Okay, just a little status on the probe situation. We have no further queries on the, the docking probe at this time. Uh, the conclusions of our ground analysis are that uh, the system is now working nominally, and our current intention is that you'll be go for the lunar landing and uh, all subsequent events. Uh, if we have any further commentary or further discussion on the subject, why uh, we'll get back to you later on it. With respect to mid-course correction number two, we plan for that to take place at the nominal time, which is about uh, 30 hours, 36 minutes GET, and it'll be about 71 feet per second, which is also close to nominal. Back in Houston, Joan Russo was also dealing with the media, but she was having a more positive experience. While the media was camped out in the street in front of their house, the children would take coffee to reporters as well as the Secret Service detail that had been assigned to protect the family's privacy as much as possible. Joan also set up a television in the family's garage for the reporters to watch. An interesting aspect for the Urusa children was that they were allowed to skip school a bonus accommodation in a child's eyes that was afforded to families whose patriarchs were in space. Alan Russo recalled that when his daddy was named to the flight, his first reaction was, that means we won't have to go to school. In fact, one morning during the flight, the boys climbed a tree in the front yard and razzed 
some of their friends who were walking to school. Joan had explained to the children that they should expect a lot of attention from newspaper and television reporters, saying the reporting on the activities of the family was part of the coverage of the mission, but it would vanish when the flight was over. Early one morning during the mission, Chris, age 11, went to get the morning newspaper prior to sunrise, and a plethora of flashbulbs unexpectedly exploded, sending the frightened youngster scurrying back to the house without the newspaper. Jack and Alan were photographed playing in a refrigerator box, and a newspaper erroneously captioned the picture that the boys were romping in a pretend spacecraft. Eventually, the children began to tire of the media exposure during the flight, but they remembered Joan's earlier admonishments regarding media attention. The Rusa family had two squawk boxes installed in their home, one in the living room and one in Stu and Joan's bedroom. The box allowed them to listen to real-time transmissions between Apollo 14 and Mission Control, and the children were fascinated by the devices. And, as might be expected, Joan and the children visited Mission Control more than once, as did Shepard and Mitchell's family members, watching the activity of the NASA Nerve Center from the gallery behind Mission Control. Another group that was having fun on the ground while the mission was going on was Gene Cernan and his backup crew for Apollo 14. It seems that a certain astronaut who was in the White Room just before launch and who was the last person to inspect and set up the command module, had taken the opportunity to place numerous beep-beep patches stowed away in various locations throughout the spacecraft. The beep-beep patches were, of course, the backup crew's mission patches featuring the cartoon characters Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. Additionally, somehow... During earlier preparations, backup crew members and or support crew members and or certain NASA technicians had even managed to get beep-beep patches sneaked into the lunar module. Cernan estimated that the total number of patches in the command module and lunar module was around 25, and the backup commander claimed that beep-beep patches were even in the backpacks that would be worn by Shepard and Mitchell on the surface of the moon. Ed Mitchell recalled that they were all over the place. They were in various storage areas. It seemed like every time we opened a particular storage bin for the first time, one of those things would come floating out. Whenever a backup crew patch made an unexpected appearance, Shepard would respond with a rehash of his original retort. Tell Cernan beep beep his behind. Overall conditions in the Apollo command module were tight, but not overly claustrophobic, and the crew had been preparing for such a lifestyle for over a year and a half. Privacy was pretty much non-existent, particularly when it came to body functions. Urination involved the use of a vacuum tube, while defecation meant placing an adhesive receptacle across the buttocks in an unusually clumsy attempt to capture all the stool 
which was then supposed to be saved for analysis upon return to earth. Of course, some leaks occurred from both procedures. That meant that sanitary housekeeping accompanied by expected odors kept the astronauts scrambling at times. Shepard said it was a good time to put on an oxygen mask. Additionally, the trio could only take sponge baths, which did not particularly alleviate body odor. But things could have been worse. Jim Lovell, who had spent 14 days with Frank Borman in an extremely cramped Gemini spacecraft, thought highly of the Apollo command module. He said the living conditions, though crowded, were much better than Gemini. The pure oxygen atmosphere pretty much kept the odor in check. The Apollo also had a greater variety of food. During the long coast, command module pilot Rusa stayed busy with navigation, monitoring the spacecraft's guidance alignment on a regular basis, and setting up guidelines for possible mid-course corrections. He would have the command module all to himself at times during the outward-bound portion of the journey, as Shepard and Mitchell floated into the lunar module to begin initial checkouts of its systems. The Apollo 14 astronauts spent another restful day today, their spacecraft picking up speed. There was one new concern back on the ground, but space agency officials tended to discount it. David Schumacher reports. Engineers at Mission Control say they're not worried, but they did spend a lot of time today talking about a problem in one of the two batteries the lunar module needs to get back off the moon Saturday. Battery has a slightly low voltage reading, an indication, possibly, that something somewhere is causing an electrical drain. But, according to the engineers, it's even more possible that the instrument gauge is off, so unless there's some drastic change, they'll go ahead with the landing. The astronauts are unworried, slept most of the day here in the command module. Early this morning, Shepard and Mitchell crawled through the tunnel into the lunar module and reported that everything is ready. First, Shepard. The equipment of the screen into the lab at this time to check out telecommunications, do a little housekeeping, let the gentleman look the vehicle over, and also in this particular case, the United States, the command module, while we're there. Uh, this is done during the flight on the way to the barracks to save time so that when we actually go into the lamp for the final time prior to the descent, there will be less things to do. So far, everything is working very well with the command module. We're very pleased with the way the systems are working. Everything is quiet, going along extremely smoothly, and uh, we have a happy little ship here. While Rusa appreciated the ease in which weightlessness figured into his movements, he noticed at times that the phenomena did interfere with his attempt to hold himself steady while utilizing his sextant or other instruments. Nevertheless, his navigation stayed on the money. Housekeeping duties for the command module were also the responsibility of the command module pilot. Stu had to prepare meals, which were often granulated items that had to be mixed with hot water. He also had to discard the leftover packets, all the while monitoring oxygen and fuel, and performing other tasks such as charging batteries, dumping waste, and purging fuel cells. Crew members took photographs and made 16mm movies including documentation of activities of other astronauts throughout the flight. 
One in-flight film showed Rusa contemplating a squeeze packet full of orange liquid as it was sent floating over to him by another crew member. Could it have been the powdered drink mix marketed as Tang, the astronaut's drink? It could have been, but Tang was not a standard or requisite sustenance item for Apollo flights. During the long coast to the moon, NASA had planned several windows of opportunity for mid-course corrections, but Rusa's initial navigation was good, and the first optimum time for correction was canceled. However, around 30 and a half hours after launch, Apollo 14's SPS engines did crank up for the first time, burning for less than 11 seconds for a necessary mid-course correction. We're one minute away now from our first mid-course correction. A maneuver scheduled uh, to occur now in about 45 seconds. Flight controllers here are monitoring their data and uh, will be observing the performance of the service propulsion system engine and spacecraft systems during the uh, uh, period of this burn. Uh, total burn duration again is uh, planned to be about 10.3 seconds. It'll give us a change in velocity of 71.4 feet per second. Coming up on 10 seconds, and we show ignition. Our guidance and control officer reports all pressures in the engine look normal. And we uh, show the burn has been uh, shut down. Uh, we'll stand by for uh, an assessment of the uh, maneuver. And, uh, it was a mighty good burn there, the residuals, and uh, be no trim required. Roger out. And you heard Stu Russo report a mighty good burn, uh, no, ne no necessity to trim out the uh, residuals with the RCS. A second mid-course maneuver was performed some three days and five hours after launch. Astronauts were allowed to bring along cassettes of music for entertainment, and a DJ for a country-western music radio station had prepared cassettes for Stu Rusa that included selections by artists such as Johnny Cash, Sonny James, and Jerry Lee Lewis, among others. Buck Owens and the Buckaroos actually re-recorded some of their songs especially for the mission, and Owens even introduced them himself. As Apollo 14 raced toward its planned orbit around the moon, its crew was drawn to the windows to observe the bizarre airless world they were rapidly approaching. Understandably, some of their comments were like those of excited schoolboys rather than pragmatic space explorers. Oh man, look what's out that window too, Mitchell exclaimed. Looks like a plaster of Paris cast, said Rusa. It sure does, doesn't it, said Mitchell. It doesn't even look real. I wish there was some other word besides fantastic to describe it. But it does. It looks like somebody has placed a cast and poured it out there, said Rusa. Three days after leaving the Earth's orbit, the linked-together ships of Apollo 14 
the combined command service module and the lunar module, reached the moon. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 309 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 14, The Long Coast. Hope you enjoyed this episode as well as the Apollo 11 50th anniversary episodes. They were a pleasure to bring to you. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 140 are available on the Archive Podcast Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. In case you haven't heard, we uh, lost another space pioneer this week, Chris Kraft. He was NASA's first flight director, and he died at the age of 95, just days after the 50th anniversary celebrations of the first moon landing. I want to read some excerpts from his obituary from uh, NPR and the BBC. Kraft was the architect of Mission Control. He was the first flight director, beginning with Alan Shepard's 15-minute suborbital flight. During the 1960s, NASA's glory days, when it rushed to meet JFK's goal for landing on the moon before the end of the decade, the organization took risk and succeeded in large part because of Chris Kraft. NASA Chief Jim Bridenstine said his legacy was immeasurable, that America has lost a national treasure with the passing of one of NASA's earliest pioneers. Kraft was born on February 28, 1924 in Phobos, Virginia, where he attended school and developed an interest in playing baseball as well as the drum and the bugle. He enrolled at Virginia Polytech in 1941 to study mechanical engineering. The next year, as the United States became ever more involved in World War II, Kraft decided to join the Navy as an aviation cadet, but injuries to his right hand sustained when he was badly burned at the age of three meant that he was declared unfit for military service. Back at Virginia Polytech, an optional course in basic aeronautics inspired him to major in aeronautical engineering, the subject in which he graduated in 1944. He went on to join the Federal National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics, NASA's predecessor, at Langley, a few miles from his home in Virginia. He was assigned to the Flight Research Division, and he contributed to programs which included evaluating the flying qualities of aircraft and tests to measure supersonic aerodynamics. Kraft joined NASA not long after it was created in 1958 and helped design a space program from scratch. It was a massive undertaking, And there were so many things he had to think through, like developing a communication system that would allow him to speak to the crews every 15 minutes, 
To accomplish this, he had to develop a whole worldwide network which had never been done. That in itself was quite a job. In addition to the technical, he also had to assemble his team, dozens of controllers who monitored the astronauts and their spacecraft. Anything to do with the mission. He was like the general in a battle with his troops, and he had to coordinate all of them. He had to digest all these bits of data that were coming at him from all these different systems, all the different flight controllers. Kraft's leadership was tested after the Apollo 1 launch pad fire in 1967 that killed three astronauts during a countdown rehearsal. Kraft said he wrestled with whether the rush to the moon ultimately killed the crew, saying, We allowed the poor workmanship to happen. That was unforgivable. That we knew it was happening. We weren't willing to stop the wheels to fix it. Kraft said he never got over the disaster. Kraft retired from NASA in 1982, and in 2006, NASA honored Kraft for his crucial work in America's space program with the Ambassador of Exploration Award given to astronauts and other key individuals who participated in the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs between 1961 and 72. NASA named its Mission Control Building at the Johnson Space Center in Houston after Chris Kraft in 2011. But Kraft often complained that NASA had stopped being bold after the moon missions. He said, quote, We didn't do the follow-on, and we could have, and we should have, end quote. Many of Kraft's original ideas remain in use today. Chris Kraft, dead at 95. If you would like more information on the life of Chris Kraft, it is available on episodes 127 and 128 of the Archive Podcast. Okay, the pictures for this week's episode are available on the website, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here, you may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue, nor do we have a government grant or a corporate endowment. We are entirely listener-supported. Please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded in four ways. They are added to the donors page along with longevity emojis for multiple years of contributions and that is better explained on the donors page. Donors are also receive a thank you message. They're recognized on the podcast and are automatically entered in the weekly giveaway. We were pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Stuart C. from Hawaii donated at the Orion level and earned a rocket emoji. Robert W. from Pennsylvania sent in another donation this year and moved to the shuttle level. Andrew R. from Michigan sent in another donation this year in honor of Apollo 11 and moved to the Salyut Skylab level. Stephen S. from Germany donated at the Apollo level and earned his shooting star emoji. We received a donation from the east of France to honor Guillaume B. on his upcoming birthday. He is at the Apollo level. Kevin P. from Massachusetts donated at the Apollo level. Tom P. from the U.K. donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. 
and we had an anonymous donation at the Vostok level, and Andrew W. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. Thank you very much for supporting the podcast these past two weeks. We are now at 233 Patreons with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 375 with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. For the 375 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. Here's Mrs. SRH with the weekly drawing. Thanks, Mike. Hello, everyone. I am happy to announce the winner of the SRH logo magnet. It is three inches in diameter, round, and will stick to most refrigerators. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Martin Greaves. Martin Greaves, if you would email us, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Thank you to all 375 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. My sources for this week's episode were Light This Candle by Neil Thompson, Smoke Jumper, Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley, Failure Is Not An Option by Gene Krantz, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, The Internet Archive, CBS News, Apollo 14 Flight Journal, Project Apollo Archive on Flickr, and Wikipedia. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. I will try to have episode 310 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.